Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. This week, Adrian Waldridge talks about the political homelessness of America's business class. All around the world are powerful forces that are marginalizing business. And after a British tribunal makes a landmark ruling against Uber, Ryan Avent discusses the future of work in the gig economy. I think what we're going to see is the emergence of a new set of, of rules and regulations that govern this kind of in-between sort of employment. And finally, free shoes to children in need. What could possibly go wrong? Samir Keynes looks at the economics of a one-for-one shoe offer. The academic described them as a welcome gift, but they're not having the kind of transformative effects on these kids' lives that maybe the people buying the shoes might be led to believe. But first, American big business is lamenting that it's lost influence in its ancestral political party, the Republicans. Which is odd, considering its current champion is himself a tycoon. Donald Trump. It reduces or eliminates most of the deductions and loopholes available to special interests and to the very rich. In other words, it's going to cost me a fortune. We talked about this last week in a special segment pitting Wall Street against Main Street, tackling the question of just how responsible big business is for the woes of the middle class. And we asked you to send your thoughts too. Some, like John Volrath, said we should look to Washington, not Wall Street, as the source of Main Street's problems. The Clintons, Obama and the leftward drift are responsible for our problems, not Wall Street. But not everyone is so forgiving. Adrian Waldridge, our Schumpeter columnist, is writing this week about business and its diminished role in American politics. He joins me now on the line from Chicago. Adrian, in what sense is America's business class truly politically homeless? Yeah, I mean, I think America's business class has always been a big force in politics. And yet they go into this election completely without a home, I think more powerless than they have been perhaps since the 1930s. They used to be the the group of people who dominated the Republican Party, but the Republican Party has turned against business. Donald Trump has run a sort of anti-business campaign, has repeatedly bashed business, has repeatedly claimed that um, the basic tenets of the business philosophy, which is sort of fairly liberal immigration policies, um, free trade in, in commodities is anathema to him. Business people have, have taken the message. You know, virtually nobody from the business world has endorsed Donald Trump. Many have unendorsed him very enthusiastically, denounced him. So business has shifted to the Democratic Party, but at the same time, the Democratic Party is not a very um, amenable base for business. The Democrats have shifted significantly to the left. Hillary Clinton, who was basically a pro-business Democrats, even Hillary Clinton has been forced to come out against the you know, free trade deals and things like that. So 
the Republicans have turned against business. The Democrats are not a very amenable home. So a very odd position for the business class to be in. But to what extent is that just a, a function of the election campaign itself? I mean, after the election, whoever wins, wouldn't they have to tack to the centre and, and towards business? Well, that's what business thinks. I think the business people think that this is a crazy, peculiar time and everything will go back to normal fairly quickly. I don't actually think that's the case because I think it reflects very deep structural shifts in the nature of American politics and public sentiments. American political parties have been polarizing along ideological lines. The Democratic Party has become more liberal. The Republican Party has become more conservative. The sort of centrist, pro-business Democrats that were the basis of the Clinton coalition in the 1990s have been squeezed out of politics. A lot of them were northeastern liberal Republicans. They've gone. Or there were white, southern, conservative Democrats. They've gone. Politics has polarized. At the same time, large numbers of people have turned against business. You know, the millennium generation associates business with Enron. It associates business with the, with the bailouts. It's not a very pro-business generation. So there, and at the same time, there are powerful forces all around the world. You know, Brexit, Brexit um, was driven in many ways by anti-multinational sentiment, anti-business sentiment. So all around the world are powerful forces that are marginalizing business. So in the 1990s, everybody in politics was competing to be as pro-business as possible. Now we're in danger of a world in which everybody's competing to be as anti-business as possible. That's if they want to win elections. We know from uh, leaked recordings that, and transcripts that Hillary Clinton, for example, is actually has some, some attitudes which are positively pro-business and pro-trade, which she's been opposing in the, in the campaign. Sure. I mean, Hillary Clinton is a pro-business, pro-trade Democrat. Not quite as much of her husband, but cut from the same cloth. But I think it's going to be very hard for her to tack to the center. The number of Democrats who are liberal and very critical of business has gone up significantly since the 1990s. Bernie Sanders is a powerful force within the Democratic Party. Uh, so the Democrats will be quite hostile to, to her moving to the center. And Republicans also, because the Republican Party has shifted to the right, will not be as amenable to sort of her policies of triangulation if she tries to do what her husband did. So I think the center ground has not gone, but it's very much harder to dominate that ground than it used to be in the past. So where can business go? I mean, after this election, how can it regroup to try and recoup some of its political influence? I think it's very hard for business to do that. But I think it needs to do two things. One is that some of the responsibility for the current parlous state of business lies with business itself. Some of it's structural, some of it lies with business. And business has done two things over the last few years which have been very dangerous. One is to be obsessively concerned with short-term strategy, investing in lobbyists, investing in people who advance the interests of their particular companies or of their particular industry groups. And the second is to be very ideological. Business got involved with the conservative movement in the late 1970s and has tended to shift some elements of business have shifted to the right. So they've focused very much on being players in Republican politics. And I think both of those strategies are dangerous. Business needs to start thinking about the national interest, not just the sectional interests of particular companies. And it needs to start thinking about the middle ground, the vital center of American politics, not trying to play the game of movement conservatism. So I think 
seize the centre ground. That's my advice to business. And that leads on to an, an obvious other question. Is you described very well the difficulties of it regaining its influence in either of the current two big parties. Might we see big business rallying behind an independent or third-party candidate in 2020? We could do. I mean, I think that we're in a very volatile situation all around the world in which political parties, all political alliances are being remade by technology, by populism and the rest of it. On the other hand, these political parties have been very um, enduring in America. My own strategic advice would be try to reform the parties from within first, try to move the, the Republicans to the center and the Democrats to the center, because creating a new party is difficult. But I think if we have another election cycle like this current electoral cycle with uh, you know, a member of the Democratic establishment versus a uh, flame-throwing populist, then I think it will really be time to say that we need a, a new, new political party. One of the strangest things that, 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 that I've seen in politics is this particular inflection uh, at this particular point in every election cycle, you see people talking about the future, the sort of future of America that they want to create, the sort of world they want to do. Why are they in politics? They want to do this. They want to do that. They want a better America. We're not seeing that at the moment in America. We're seeing an extraordinary war over emails, and we're seeing an extraordinarily bitter anti-establishment campaign by Trump. But there's no sense of what the future holds. So um, if, if this happens again next time around, it really is time to remake the whole system. Adrian Waldridge, Schumpeter columnist, thank you very much. Now, on to the gig economy. Since its inception, Uber, the taxi-hailing service, has styled itself as a tech platform rather than a transport company. Drivers for Uber are seen as self-employed contractors who use their own vehicles to ferry Uber's customers. This keeps margins high for the company. But a tribunal in London this week ruled that two Uber drivers who'd brought a suit are in fact entitled to some of the rights of full employees. Ryan Avent, our free exchange columnist, is here with me to discuss that ruling and the future of work in the gig economy. Ryan, can you tell us a bit more about what exactly the tribunal found? Well, Uber argues that it is not a traditional employer, employer of its drivers in, in any real sense, that it, all it does is provide this technological platform that allows independent contractors to come in and choose when and how to supply their work. Two of its drivers disputed this and, and took Uber to the tribunal to demand particular rights. And what they were seeking in, in particular was a minimum wage and the right to holiday, paid holiday. And the tribunal looked at the question and decided that the two drivers had, had a point. Does this ruling cover all 30,000 Uber drivers in, in London and elsewhere in the country, in the world? It doesn't. It just applies to the two drivers named in the suit. But Uber has faced lawsuits like this before in California. There was legal action considering whether or not drivers should be counted as employees rather than independent contractors. And the thought is that this pattern will continue and that ultimately Uber might find itself in a situation where all of its drivers are given some employment rights. And that might pose a significant threat to its underlying business model. Indeed. I mean, how much danger is, is the whole business model in? Well, I think quite a bit. Being able to name its drivers as independent contractors gives Uber uh, quite a lot of benefits. I mean, it, it saves the money uh, on the direct cost that the drivers face, but it also protects them from bearing liability when drivers get into accidents. This was the at the root of some cases in California. So to take them on and to have to, to pay basic wages for time spent would be a significant expense for Uber. At the same time, it would mess with the sort of incentive structures that, that help Uber do what it does and that, that riders appreciate, which is that in times of high demand, uh, 
the amount of money the drivers can earn goes up. So more drivers into the area and serve the, the riders. And at times of low demand, uh, there aren't as many drivers around uh, because you don't have that those higher fares available. If drivers could count on a minimum rate of pay, regardless of demand, uh, there would be the incentive to to be on the job and be driving around whether or not the demand was there. And so that would be a huge expense, an inefficient expense uh, from the perspective of Uber, and would really complicate, I think, its attraction to riders, since presumably fares would have to go up to offset that cost. I mean, looking at the gig economy more broadly, I suppose it's been seen as bringing benefits, huge benefits to consumers in terms of low prices for taxis, low hotel rents for Airbnb, but also huge benefits to the providers in terms of the independence, uh, extra income, flexibility of working hours. Is the mood now changing? Is it now beginning to be seen as actually exploitative of the contributors? What we're seeing is that these sorts of apps and this this new you know category of work, it, it really fits into a gray area in employment law in that it allows many, many more people to engage in these kinds of gig work, which is not something that people could do in sort of large numbers before. When courts have talked about employment before, what they've largely focused on is control. How much control does a particular company over what a a person does and, and how they do it? And if there was a lot of control, that person was counted as an employee. If there wasn't much control, they were considered self-employed or an independent contractor. And Uber, in providing this platform, which creates in kind of a a very choreographed way uh, opportunities for drivers, um, fits into this this weird area where they are telling a driver how to do the job more or less, to where to pick up a rider and what routes to take. But the driver still has a huge amount of freedom over when, what car they are able to use. And so it's just, it fits in this kind of, this gray area. And I think what we're going to see is the emergence of a new set of, of rules and regulations that govern this kind of in-between sort of employment. Ryan, thank you very much. Finally, what if I started a shoe company and every time I sold a pair of shoes, I gave a pair away? And Tom's way, Shoes it calls itself the one-for-one one company. Buy a pair of Tom's and the company will donate a pair to a child in need. You get new shoes and you do good. What's not to like? But does it actually do good? Samir Keynes, our economics correspondent, joins me now. Samir, how does this work? What Tom's does is, is, is just what it says. It, it gives shoes to people in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. It works with charitable partners, for example, World Vision, to, to give kids shoes. I could see some problems with that. I mean, does it, for example, put local shoemakers out of business? So that is one concern. Stepping back a bit, what Tom's has done is they've done a fairly rigorous, randomised control trial assessing the impact of their policy. And that's come up with two papers. And the first paper finds that although there does seem to be a small negative effect on shoe buying, it's not big. At this level of of giving kids shoes, it's not collapsing local markets like people might be worried about. They find that for every 20 pairs of shoes that they give, that reduces local shoe buying by about one pair. So it does what it says on the tin. I mean, the Western consumer gets his shoes, his or her shoes, and does good at the same time? Or are there problems? So the second paper uh, is done by the same group of academics, and they want to see whether there are any positive benefits of of giving these shoes. So they look at a huge range of things. They look at health, they look at absenteeism, you know, are these kids getting fewer foot diseases? Are they feeling better about themselves? And 
they essentially don't come up with anything. Uh, I spoke to one of the researchers yesterday and he was, you know, he was saying we expected to find something, um, but really it's just a bit of a damp squib. The main good thing is that the kids seem to really, really love the shoes. They wear them loads, you know, the most common response is for the kids to wear them every day, these black Tom's canvas shoes. Although some of the boys say that they don't like the shoes because they're meant for pregnant women. So the kids like the shoes and the academic described them as a welcome gift, but they're not having the kind of transformative effects on these kids' lives that maybe the people buying the shoes might led to believe. Are these children growing up dependent on aid? So that is the one thing that the researchers did find that caused some concern. Among the children that didn't get any shoes, about 66% said that others should provide for the needs of my family. And among the kids that did, that rose to about 79%. So that's worrying, right? If if these kids are being given these shoes and, and that's make, that's changing their attitudes towards whether they should be getting external help. So, you know, obviously with any charitable intervention, you're going to run the risk of this kind of aid dependency. I guess the response to that is, well, you know, you might be more willing to tolerate that if you're getting the transformative impact. And are Tom's going to make changes to the programme in response to these reports? So it's interesting. They have been branching out into other areas. So one of the the products they're selling is sunglasses. And and for every pair of sunglasses, they're offering vision correction for someone with impaired sight. Right. So that kind of intervention is probably much more likely to have a transformative impact than giving children shoes, many of whom already have shoes. Samir Keynes, thank you very much. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the economics of Tom's one-for-one scheme, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.